This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. There continues to be opposition in uh, Hamilton to uh, light rail transit, of course. Some just outright opposed to the concept of it. Uh, some concerned about the, the long-term costs of this, the operating costs. It's one thing to, for the provincial government to say, Here's the, we, you know, we'll fund this to get this thing built. But what's it going to cost to operate every year? And, uh, you know, there's a number of different questions about that. Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly has raised a lot of those questions and uh, is uh, rather concerned that she's not getting a whole lot of answers right now. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Donna. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm great. How are you? Good. This is variations on the same thing that you and I talked about a couple of months ago. Have you made any progress on getting some information? No, and I really worry we're not going to know those numbers until just before the provincial election, just as the contracts are being tendered. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate. Now, you have to understand, this is, these questions are really arose from um, an article, a newspaper report in the Toronto Star on October 31st. And if I, if I may, uh, just refer to a, a part of that, if, if with your indulgence. It sure. The city is yeah, I, re- I remember the article. Go ahead. The city is on the hook for tens of millions of dollars in unanticipated transit costs. And then it goes on to say, the report marks the first time that the city staff have clearly spelled out that the province won't pay for the operation of the Eglinton Crosstown, Finch West, and Shepherd East LRTs. The city entered into an agreement with the province in 2012 for the projects. And a city report that went to council at that time said that Metrolinx, the provincial transit agency, would be responsible for their operation and maintenance, leading many at City Hall to understand the Ontario government would pay those costs. But city staffers now say there is nothing in the original master agreement that compels the province to pay those costs. Initial estimates indicate the cost of operating and maintaining the four LRTs could be more than $100 million a year, assuming they all enter service by 2026. The Eglinton Crosstown alone is expected to require a $39 million annual subsidy when it opens in 2021. Now, let me be clear that those LRTs are very different than what is being proposed in Hamilton. Yeah, because they have, yeah, they they're, they're more complex. Much more complex. They... They include an underground uh, portion. The, the stations themselves are different. But the point is, I've been told by some staffers, some some so-called experts, if you will, in the field, that this is going to be in the tens. Of, this is going to be at least ten million dollars annually. We're heading into budget deliberations right now, and I can tell you, we don't have that kind of money, and people cannot afford that type of an increase in their taxes. How are we going to pay for this? Well, And you've been asking that for some time, as has other people on council and other people in the community as well. Uh, I, I got to tell you, and, and I know I want you to comment on this too, uh, I've got a lot of sympathy for Paul Johnson in this because I figure he's the city staffer who's in charge of this project and he's between a rock and a hard place because he's not getting that information from Metrolinx. Absolutely. And I specifically pointed out in the meeting on uh, Wednesday that he should not be bearing the brunt of these conversations and uh, having to field these questions. Where is our representative from Metrolinx? They should be here. They should be answering these questions, not Paul. Paul is our city representative. I want to know what Metrolinx thinks about this and what information they have that they can share with council. That really is, is the issue in one of the big issues. And I have asked that as we move forward, now that we've been told we can have a much broader and more in-depth discussion about LRT at our GIC meetings, 
uh, and to many of your listeners, GIC is just an acronym, but it's an opportunity to to have a, a better understanding of um, the background and the resolutions and the decisions made at subcommittees. So this is going to allow us to to discuss a little bit more about LRT and what has been happening at the LRT subcommittee. But I really want to see somebody from Metrolinx there. Uh, GIC is a general issues committee, and it's kind of a potpourri of everything. Uh, and uh, uh, it all has to be ratified by a, a, a formal city council meeting, just so people understand the process here. But the, the, the bottom line, Donna, here is just because a lot of people have a lot of questions right now. And, and, and I guess the number one question is, who's going to pay? Even if you can't give us the number, who's going to pay the operating costs? Is Metrolinx going to do this? Why um, don't they just, why can't we, why can that's we? That's it, that's an us or them, now. isn't it? Pardon me? That's an us or them. It's, yes, you're going to have, you're going to be responsible or no, you're not. That's all we need to know at this stage. Exactly. It's not rocket science. Let's negotiate it. Let's put a deadline. Let's finish it. Who's yeah, I know, but in Toronto right now, they seem to have made that determination. In KW, they've made that determination. Why can't we get that information about the Hamilton project? I don't know. I don't know. And it and it it's very concerning and you know, the more I look into transit initiatives and transit options, the more I'm convinced that uh we should be heading down the electric bus route. I do believe that they they are going to be autonomous. We will have driverless buses. I know it sounds crazy, but we have three vehicles on the road in Ontario right now. Of course, there is a driver behind the wheel, but they are running uh, on their own. And I think that this is going to be inevitable. It is just part of progress in, in, in terms of transit. And, of course, operating a vehicle is one of the biggest expenses. I would never suggest we're going to, you know, terminate anybody. That's not the point. But down the road, 25 years down the road, you will have vehicles on the road that will not require a driver. We will be saddled with this LRT for 13 kilometers, and it will it will be outdated technology the day it actually, I think, uh, rolls out on the first day it, uh, on the track. So there's so many things to consider, especially this cost, and perhaps that's what's going to happen. Once we learn more and more and more about the reality and the real cost of LRT in the city, I think that people are going to say, can we really afford it, and is this what's best for the, the, the city of Hamilton? I cannot, I cannot support raising taxes any more than, than what we have to do this year. But if these costs are anything like what we're seeing in Toronto, we're simply going to have to. Let's define a couple of things here for, for those that may not be totally familiar with the city budget process. Uh, you're going to, in a meeting just in a few minutes from now, you're going to start talking about capital budget. Those those are the big item things that you have to buy. Those are uh, road repairs. Those are building buildings or whatever they might want to be. I mean, but you borrow money for that more often than not. The one that's the big nut and the one that has the direct impact on my property taxes and yours is the operating budget. That's how much it costs to run the city on a yearly basis. And and that's why we need to frame this discussion, because your concern, as, as I understand it, is not about building this LRT. It's about the operating cost once it's built. Who's going to be on the hook for that, and how much is it going to be? Absolutely. Because that yes. will have an impact on our property taxes. It certainly will. It really, really will. And you have to recognize that we are... We have certain obligations with our employees in terms of uh, raises that are in the collective agreements that we have to meet. We have certain um, operating increases just with cost of living. And, of course, hydro has thrown a real wrench into all of this as well. So we're already struggling at, at a fairly substantive tax increase. Yeah, but that's, that's an interesting point you just raised. Uh, this thing runs on electricity. 
Exactly. How much and is that going to cost? Exactly. I mean, we have no... Now, having said that, I think that there could have been, you know, I, I understand that there are some options, uh, and I have been looking at transit, other forms of transit, and buses in particular, that are electric, but they uh, have power, um, solar-powered stations where they recharge. So it does help offset um, the cost. And, of course, they can also... Uh, guesstimate how much it's going to, a little bit more um, accurately on how much it's going to operate these vehicles. But having said that, you're right, this is another issue, and, and the cost of hydro is going up. It's, it's, it's a clear problem for, for us, which means it's also a very, very, very big deal for residents in the city. They can't control that, and they're seeing their utility bills soar, and we're going to have to come back to them and say, oh, and by the way, we're going to increase your taxes perhaps one more percent just to cover the cost of operating an LRT that runs a total of 13 kilometers, 11 on a main line and two on an offshoot. And I'm not so sure that they're going to like that. This is just a matter of gaining information uh, because, you know, I don't even need a number at this stage. But I do need to know who's going to be responsible. I mean, there are a couple of questions that have come up. And, and as I say, I've, every time Paul Johnson comes on the program, I ask the questions. And, yeah, well, we're negotiating that. Uh, it takes two to negotiate. I mean, Metrolinx has got to come, start coming up with some answers here. Who's going to operate this stuff? Because uh, I know there's a, obviously the, the ATU wants their people to run this thing. Uh, I again asked Paul Johnson that, and he says, well, the, we haven't determined that yet. Well, when is that going to happen? I mean, that's, and, and okay, what, who's going to be in charge of the operating costs? We haven't determined that yet. Sure, they have, maybe they haven't carved it, you know, it's not carved in stone yet, Donna, but look, Metrolinx knows what they're doing. I mean, they've got projects going on all over the province right now, and you know darn well that they have it in their mind who's going to be doing this and who's going to pay for it. They just haven't told us yet. It's, it's the absence of information that's causing a lot of frustration here. I would challenge you that maybe Metrolinx doesn't know what it's doing, especially if you want to read the AG report. But um, I think there's also a whole political agenda. You have a problem with building upside-down bridges? Is that what what you're telling me here, Donna? (laughs) Not at all. I think that would be a very interesting tourism site. Yeah. Uh, I think that what we have, have to recognize as well is that we are being told that all of the answers will be available just before the next provincial election. What does that mean? Bill, seriously, if the numbers are good, we may know what they are before we go into the election. If not, they'll be held off. So don't forget, uh, it's all contingent about, you know, we'll hear something in 2018, first quarter, second quarter, 2018. And of course, that's the provincial election. So it's, there's a lot of different things that are happening, I'm sure, behind the scenes. And we, we could have a decision, but I'm not so sure politically that that's what... Um, that's what the province wants right now. Maybe they are holding off until just before the election. But the reality is that we deserve to know. We need to know how much is it going to cost to, to operate this, this track. Well, even before you get to the number, though, it's more important to find out, is the city going to be on the hook for this thing? And uh, Who I don't will be know. on the hook? You're right. Let's um, just say, if, if we're not on the hook, go crazy. I mean, Blow you know, Ottawa's, Ottawa's building theirs right now. There's, you know, the work is going on in Toronto right now. The work is going on in KW. Have they been told? Because here's by process of elimination, Donna, I do, and I don't know, I'm speculating, but if they've told Ottawa you're responsible for the operating costs and they've told KW that and they've told Toronto that, pretty safe bet that's what they're going to say to Hamilton. I would suggest you're probably right. But just tell us. Just let us know. 
So what are the next steps here? I mean, you guys have gone to these meetings. You've talked about this at your General Issues Committee meeting. You've asked for some answers from Metrolinks. I mean, clearly Hamilton City staff can't give you this information because it's not their project. I think we just keep pressuring Metrolinks to come back with a, a resolution. Now, I'm under, I understand that there's, there are negotiations going on, but why is it taking so long simply to, as you said, determine who will be responsible, and why can't we share that? This is a public, these are public dollars, this is a public project, and we deserve to know something about what's going to happen as we move forward. At least tell us who will be responsible for maintaining it, which is going to be hefty as well, and covering the cost of the day-to-day operation. Okay, but in the meantime, if we have to wait till 2018 to get some of this information, you as a council, Donna, are going to have to vote on various issues of this project. Uh, and, and give a check mark off to, to this phase, to that phase, et cetera. How comfortable are you doing that without the knowledge about the end game and where that money's going to come from? I'm not comfortable at all, and actually I think it's very irresponsible. I really do. How can we say we will take on this project and not know what it's going to cost? We can't, I, I just I cannot get my head wrapped around that, that we are willing to jeopardize our own budget and um, put our own residents on the hook for costs that we aren't aware of what they're going to be. They could skyrocket. If they're anything, and I'm hoping they aren't, and they may not be, but if they're anything close to what we're seeing in Toronto, it's going to be a hefty, hefty price, and somebody's going to have to pay the bill, and that means that's the Hamilton resident, the taxpayer. Is this on the agenda for this meeting this morning? No. Simply because this is capital budget, and and we're told that we are, this is not going to be a capital budget item for the city. Correct. So when's your next opportunity to try to get some answers on this? Uh, at council meeting next week, and uh, you'll have to bear with me when I get um, some of the sneers from my colleagues who don't want me to keep bringing this up because it's been discussed before, and I keep saying, no, it hasn't. We still don't have an answer. So, Well, in fairness, it has been discussed numerous times, but you don't have any answers yet. You, 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 can, you know, if you if you ask the question twenty five times and you don't get an answer to it, it's not resolved. No, it, it, it may be a bother to some people that that just just want to move move blindly ahead. But I could, and I support the project in concept. But I've got some concerns about dollars and some of these answers that I have not been forthcoming right now. And I can understand that I wouldn't want I wouldn't feel very comfortable moving forward until I had some answers to this. Especially in light of what we're facing right now, and it's only going to get worse as we head into budget deliberations in January. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton is the hottest housing market in the country. In the country. This is the, uh, this, what's happening here is just phenomenal. And, and continuing to happen, as a matter of fact. The REMAX Annual Housing Market Outlook Report says real estate in the Hamilton-Burlington area shot up uh, an incredible 19.8% this year compared to last. Uh, and that's ahead of the Fraser Valley. I mean, everybody looks at BC and says, oh, it's got to be the hottest talk. Look at the prices there. Uh, Hamilton is, is setting records here. What's going on? Why? And how long is it going to last? Well, let's uh, bring our friend Rob Golfi into the conversation. Realtor, of course, with Remax Escarpment. Rob, how are you doing today? Great, thank you, Bill. How are you doing? Boy, no kidding, you're doing great. Look at these numbers. I mean, there's it's there's hot, there's hot, and there's very hot, and then there's Hamilton. This is an, an incredible story. So we are number one in Hamilton. That's fantastic. I'm so proud of it. <laughs> What's going but on here, Rob? It just uh, it, it's it's affordability. We we got people. You know, spilling over uh, from the GTA. So we got two types of people. We got the uh, the first time buyers that are coming in, 
buying homes, uh, and they're looking for the single detached home. You know, they're you know the dream home. You know, to you know to you know they're getting married. Some of them uh, starting a family, and then we've got the investors. So we've got we're getting it from both sides, and uh, and they're, they're and they're doing it. You know, they're buying homes, and and it's just driving the prices up. And uh, and they're and the most of them are buying more in the uh, in the central uh, and east end uh, of uh, of Hamilton. That, yeah, let's talk about that. I'm always intrigued when I hear about a hot market like this as as to exactly who's buying what product and 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 in what location. I mean, they were they were go with the old real estate phrase: location, 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 right? But uh, it's I was I was kind of impressed by that. Now, when you mentioned downtown, are you talking about the core or just below the escarpment? Uh, below the escarpment, uh, you know, Central Hamilton, where you got you got all those beautiful, you know, century homes. You know, they're like uh, you know two and a half story brick homes. Um, they're becoming trendy areas now, like you know Grant Avenue, um, and uh, they're coming in. They're, clean, they're cleaning it up, and, uh, and, and and a lot of their neighbors now are becoming uh, other uh, GTA uh, people that uh, uh, that are moving into the into the neighborhood. Um, and then East Hamilton had the biggest uh, growth. Um, we had like just uh, month over uh, like 2015 to 16 in, in uh, November. Uh, uh, versus last year in November, 39% increase just in East Hamilton alone, a $94,000 increase in average sale price from last last year to this year of November. That's phenomenal. And what are they buying? Is it, is it those uh, those older homes again? Yeah, your single detached homes, those um, you know the, the you know the wartime homes. Uh, there, I remember about less well 18 months ago. Uh, we listed a house down there, and uh, it was it was about one hundred sixty nine thousand. And uh, and I called a couple of uh, you know people, friends, and people that we knew that uh, uh, that were investors. And I said, this is a good deal, guys. I mean, it's uh, you know it didn't have a basement. And I said, this is a super deal. Jump on it. And today, this house is worth well over uh, you know two fifty. You can't. You know, it's just uh, and it's going to continue, Bill. It's just going to continue. I'm intrigued by the fascination that uh, that buyers, and maybe even I guess from the GTA, Rob, have with some of these these older homes, as you said, uh, century homes. Some people ever further them as, uh, and and you mentioned like Grand Avenue down around there. That's that's kind of where uh, Harry Stinson's project was with the old Stinson right. School, uh, and I just drove by there the other day, and and. I, I haven't been down there for a while, and it's a f- amazing to see the rejuvenation of that neighborhood. You know, those older homes, they're, they're being sandblasted and cleaned up. You're seeing dumpsters out front, which tells me there's renovations going on. So so people are actually lo- into this for the long term. They're, they're renovating, investing, and, and, and cleaning these places up, and it's really lifted that whole neighborhood. Oh, absolutely. If you look at the, uh, like that, the, the Stinson, uh, the Stinson uh, uh, building, uh, that they converted uh, the Stinson High uh, School that was converted into condos. There was a house across the street that was completely renovated, and uh, and it sold for eight hundred thousand. So wow. people they're they're wanting like it, it's amazing and and it, and it's and it's great and then it's going to continue like like Hamilton is still undervalued, and uh, and and now you know St. Catharines and Niagara Falls are experiencing. Uh, a lot of the uh, you know the the frenzy of people coming down that way and, and buying that way. Any corridor is is, uh, is is the key factor. The Golden Horseshoe is is where to move to. What's uh, what's driving that? Is it just the unaf- uh, the unaffordable uh, aspects of what's going on in Toronto right now? Yes, yeah. Like in Toronto, they uh, uh, I think within uh, in ten years, 
Um, I think they mentioned in the report the other day that uh, I think it was 10 years ago you could have bought a, the average selling price of a home was like just over 300,000. Now it's it's almost 1.3. So it's just becoming unaffordable for the average person to buy anything in uh, in Toronto. And now with uh, you know with the increase of uh, train service going to Toronto and and uh, and also the LRT will bring will boost the market here. Um, you know, with the economy being great, uh, it's just, uh, you know, Hamilton's going to be a great hub uh, for everybody for the next uh, five years. And uh, if you've got to buy real estate now because otherwise it's going to be $100,000 more in two to three years from now. When you mentioned investors, I mean, there's, there's home buyers, obviously, people who just uh, want to buy the house and, and, and live in it, and, and that's fine. Are, are we seeing more people, though, that are investing that maybe want to buy a house, fix it up, and, and then just put it back on the market or uh, that sort of thing? Is, uh, are they targeting a, an area like Hamilton now? Yes, they are. The, the, uh, now, you've you got your, your investors that want to flip. That's becoming more and more difficult because of the housing prices. Yeah. Uh, but then you've got your investor that just wants to buy the property, uh, put the, park their money in the in the property and then rent the house out and then you know maybe cash out in about five to ten years from now, um, and then you've got and then you've got your first time buyers that are coming this way, from the GTA or your retirees and now they're coming, uh, cashing out in uh, in uh, Toronto and and coming this way and then it's just uh, it, we're getting all aspects of buyers coming uh, in the Hamilton core. What's that do to you as as an agent? Uh, who, I mean, obviously you want to try to maximize this, and you want to uh, make sure that you you know get the best deal for somebody who's who's listing with you. For instance, do you gear a lot of your marketing now towards the GTA and say, "Hey, there's stuff going on here." Absolutely, um, we are we are members of the uh, Toronto Real Estate Board. Also, we put all our listings on the Toronto Real Estate Board, and uh, we because we know that uh, these GTA agents are coming here. And uh, so we want to make sure they have uh, easy access to our listings out here. And, uh, and we're, you know, our team's growing and, uh, you know, to service uh, the uh, demand that's coming out this way. I, I mean, I even know up in our Ancaster neighborhood, there was a house for sale a few months ago now. And uh, just, uh, you know, for the giggles of it, you know, I always go, oh, I wonder how they're marketing that. And I, I went online to it. It was a Remax house, as a matter of fact. And and the whole marketing was obviously geared towards uh, probably GTA, but not really to Hamilton because they talked about the benefits of living in this area and and you know Ancaster close to highways and all this sort of stuff. I said clearly they've geared that whole marketing scheme there to somebody from the Greater Toronto area to come over here and have a look at this place. Absolutely, because we're, we we want to show them that you know the it, the, the quick access to uh, you know the four hundred three and the Queenie, um, and and they're coming and they're coming and. It just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's affordable, and, and we're still underpriced, I mean, uh, compared to other places. I mean, I know we had a 20% increase this year, um, and, uh, and Barry, the same thing. They're an outskirt of, um, of uh, the GTA, so you're getting people moving out towards that way. So Barry's experiencing a lot what we have been experiencing. They're at 16% increase uh, from last year, so, uh, so things are... Things are happening all around the GTA. That's an interesting story. Our daughter lives up there, just uh, got a job up in that area a little while ago. But our good friend right. Dave Phillips that worked for Environment Canada you know, on the Weather Channel for years uh, lived up there. He moved up there a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and he was suggesting it was uh, when they started the all-day go service. I mean, the go trains run right from Barrie to downtown Toronto now. So he right. says a lot of people that work in the GTA are buying houses up in that neighborhood because they know, hey, it's a one-hour train ride in there. 
don't have to drive, don't have to pay for parking or anything else like that. And you're sitting on the train, you're not driving, so you can do your work on the train if that's what you want to do. And it makes it very convenient. And as a result, you've seen growth in all of those areas along that line there from uh, places like Innisville and, and all the way up into Barrie. Oh, yes. Every, every, everywhere, all the way surrounding uh, uh, the, uh, the GTA, the uh People are moving there because it's affordable, and they figured, you know, they can take the uh, the, the train, and uh, and you know what, and it's it, and it's probably more relaxing, so they don't have to drive and do the stop and you know stop and go, stop and go on on the highway all the time, and uh, sometimes they could even get an extra nap on the train uh, on their way to uh, to uh, Toronto. Yeah, shouldn't do that in the car, but it's okay on the train, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, is that going to only get better for us once the, uh, the 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 go service is extended here in Hamilton and we get that line? Even I, because eventually it's going to go all the way over to to Niagara. But I mean, you know, we've got the downtown station now down, down by Leuna, and eventually one on Highway Twenty. I guess that's even going to open that eastern end of the city up even oh, more for real estate. Absolutely, it's uh, and it's already started. I mean, they're 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 preparing for the growth. Costco wouldn't be going in at uh, 50 Road uh, if they didn't uh, know that there was going to be a huge population growth down in the in the Stony Creek area. So they know uh, that uh, things are happening, and 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 the, the government knows that they uh, they're they're making it better. They they have to because more and more people are moving this way, and they need that train service. They need they need that to, to get to the GTA to, to slow down just to just to help with all the traffic that's on the highway. What about the locals around here? And, and you mentioned a term a few minutes ago, Rob, that I, I, I'm hearing more and more about when I hear about the real estate boom here, empty nesters. Uh, people that, you know, the kids have gone off to university, maybe got jobs and moved off to other communities in some cases or started their own lives here. You don't need uh, 3,000 square feet or more, you know, even now that the kids are gone. So you want something smaller. They're maybe not ready for an apartment or a condo, but they still want to have that backyard. And, and is there a market there for those people? Yeah, yes, there is. Um, well, the, the people that are retiring, the, the hard part for them is is they, they want a one-floor plan, and and that's driven the prices up. The uh, baby boomers uh, have driven the uh, the one and a half stories in the bungalows uh, to uh, becoming very expensive, and that's driven the the bungalows up in price. But they are definitely uh, moving and downsizing. But a lot of them can't because they can't find what they're looking for, so they're staying where they are, and. So there's, you know, you have choices, right? Like if you buy a house, you're competing, and they have a house to sell, and it's just, it's, it's a hard, uh, it's, they're, they're, in, they're, they're stuck in, you know, either they pay cash for the house and then put their house up for sale, and a lot of people are scared of doing that. It's, it's always a, an expectation when something is going as well as it has here to say, well, when's the bubble going to burst? But I saw the, the report from the Conference Board of Canada, and that's an independent, uh, you know. Uh, observer and what's going on, and they're painting a pretty rosy picture for Hamilton economically and from the real estate side. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you got people coming in; they've got jobs that are earning them probably sixty to eighty thousand dollars. So, if you get a couple moving in, there's one hundred and sixty thousand, maybe even one hundred ninety thousand combined income. So, they're spending that money here. So, they're buying houses here, they're renovating here, uh, they're going to restaurants here. They're you know they're they're going to be going shopping here. It is definitely going to be helping Hamilton boost everything. Like, everybody's going to win. You're going to see more restaurants opening up. You're going to see, you know, the city of Hamilton start doing even more for, for the, the city. It's, it's definitely great. Yeah, that's and, and that's one of the things, because there's always been an argument here about Hamilton. Well, you know, all these people that go outside because their jobs are in the GTA, 
Uh, and I understand that. We do need to create more jobs here. And I know you've talked about that on, on your program on Saturdays here on CHML. Uh, and, and the city's doing that. I mean, that is better than it was five years ago, ten years ago, certainly. But for those that still have good-paying jobs in the GTA, you know, by all means, come live here. Like you say, they come home at the end of the day, they spend their money on groceries here, they, they, they spend their entertainment dollars here for the most part. So it's, it's good for the local economy. I mean, it'd be great if they didn't have to commute as far, but that may just be an economic reality because that's where the job is and this is where they want to live. Oh, exactly. They, basically, they don't want to, but they're willing to do it to have – uh, a, a, a single-family home or, or a, a semi or a townhouse here, affordable, and uh, it's their way into the uh, to owning a, a home. And uh, and you know what? It, it'll help. It's just going to increase Hamilton even more. You know. What about uh, starter homes? What about those just starting out right now? There was a, a concern, uh, and again, this comes down to income levels, I suppose, and, and you know, financial situations, etc. There was a concern a, a couple of months ago, Rob, that uh, that first-time homeowners, especially because of some of the restrictions that the federal government has put on uh, with mortgages right now, that, that, that maybe single-family homes are becoming unaffordable here in Hamilton. Are you seeing that? Yeah, there, there is, because now, you know, if somebody could afford to buy a $350,000 home, uh, it, 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 it could drop down to, you know, 290000 So they, it, it hurts them, you know, the way the government does. The government always, you know, they're always trying to change things, and they're hurting, uh, you know, the first-time buyer, and they're always trying to slow, you know, they're always worried about things because they don't want to happen here what happened in the U.S. in 2008 and nine. So, but they're, you know, but, I mean, uh, it's still affordable, um, but the government should just, Stay out of it. Let 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 things roll. Let people buy what they can afford, and uh, you know it just. Uh, yeah, you're right. The government is. Uh, you know, they're always uh, tapping in there, trying to make it even tougher and tougher for first time buyers sometimes. But but the parents are helping out quite a bit too. You know, parents are always helping uh, the kids out to buy their first home. Is that why there's some uh, some bleeding of this uh, this boom that's going on towards St. Catharines and up to Brantford as well? That they, I know they're doing well there too, but the prices are a little bit lower than they are in Hamilton. They, they are, they are. So yeah, we are seeing uh, seeing bleeding. We're now we're seeing, uh, you know, we were seeing a lot of agents from the uh, Toronto coming to Hamilton, but now uh, we're seeing a lot of agents going to St. Catharines now. They're bringing their clients there, so they're coming here. They're looking for houses. They can't find. The price that they're uh, the house uh, in their price range here. So now they're going to St. Catharines, and St. Catharines is experiencing a boom area. I don't have the stats of what St. Catharines are, but I'm going to tell you something. Your uh, Remax will actually include St. Catharines coming soon, just because their numbers are going to be increasing dramatically. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I don't have the numbers either. Just I know anecdotally that St. Catharines and Brantford are starting to experience uh, some of the, these mini booms as well. Uh, average price on a Hamilton home today is about four hundred forty-one thousand uh, dollars. The average price of a, a house in Hamilton next year is projected to be almost five hundred thousand dollars. Did you ever thought we'd see these times in Hamilton? I, 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 I've got the stats for the last fifty years here, and I can't believe it. Like in two thousand and ten, the average price. This is uh, Hamilton Burlington. Hamilton Burlington combined was three hundred fourteen thousand. Now we're you know we're reaching five over five hundred thousand. It's just amazing. Like it, it, we're you know we're talking uh, six years of, uh, of of growth. But the biggest growth happened in the last two years. Um, we're we're finding that from two thousand 
from 2014 to 16, there's been a dramatic increase in growth in uh, in the Hamilton area. If somebody's thinking of listing right now, is I, I, it's an elementary question that suggests is this a good time? The numbers indicate that it certainly is. But what are people looking for? I mean, you, you mentioned about the east end of the city, et cetera, but, you know, there are others that may be those empty nesters that have larger houses right now and say maybe it's time for us to downsize. Uh, are, are they going to get the whole house sold quickly and, and for maximum dollars? Is this a good time for that to be oh, happening? Absolutely. It, it, inventory is at an all-time low. Um, what you do is you put your house up for sale and, and just get, just ask for a long closing. Get a 90 to 120-day closing, and that gives you more than ample time to find another house. But you will you will definitely do well on, on the sale of your home. There's no doubt about it. Um, and just, uh, you know, you put your house up for sale, and then you just, just you know, whoever's going to buy it, don't wait for that house. And, and don't negotiate, you know, don't worry about one or $2,000 or, you know, no, I'm, I'm not leaving my fridge, and the buyer wants the fridge. I see deals fall apart. I'm telling you, you if you walk away from that deal, you lost money because by the time you take possession on that home, it's worth probably ten to twenty thousand dollars more. So don't like people that are negotiating. Sometimes you know you get people negotiating, and you're, there's a difference of one or two thousand. You get right down to the end, and it, and it, and I tell and I, we tell our clients, I know it's tough. But you have to make a decision. If you don't go with this house, the next house down the down the street that's going to go up for sale is going to be worth twenty thousand dollars more, just because these guys are getting this money. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. On the other side of the forty uh, ninth parallel, President Elect Donald Trump is uh, making waves. Uh, with his Twitter account once again, but also with some of his uh, suggestions and recommendations for uh, his cabinet. Uh, he promised that he was going to drain the swamp. That, that was one of his campaign slogans uh, in the, the run-up to the presidential elections uh, back in November. And some are now accusing him of not draining it, but simply restocking it with his kind of folks, uh, former generals and uh, some major campaign donors are uh, being offered cabinet posts. So is this the dawning of a new day, or is it just business as usual? Michael Diamond joins us, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto. He's a conservative political pundit and always a welcome guest here on CHML. How are you doing this morning, Michael? Great. Thanks for having me. That's uh, so many different things to talk about here, about uh, President-elect Trump and what he's going on with right now. Uh, what, what about that accusation that, uh, that this is business as usual, this is rewarding all your major campaign donors and your buddies? Uh, so this idea about you know, a new day in, in Washington politics doesn't appear to be shaping up that way. You know, we see that time and time again with politicians who have promised to end the status quo, and we often just get more of the same. So in this case with Donald Trump's cabinet, you know, his promise was drain the swamp. And as you said, is he just restocking it? To me, you can even make an argument that he's, uh, uh, you know, damming some nearby areas to, to flood and make the swamp a bit bigger. <laughs> Well, and when you look at some of the dynamic here of the, of the folks that are in there, and, and I don't disagree. You're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, every political party in every country has probably done this, is you try to reward people that supported you and got you to where you are. And But I, I guess it's a matter of what are you going to offer them, and are they qualified to do that sort of thing? And uh, you have to be somewhat judicious about that. Is, is Trump exercising that, that, that kind of uh, presidential uh, attitude and, and, and consideration for these roles? You know, and I think that's that's an excellent point. That it's you know w- the reason we're seeing the individuals be attacked for their status or their past military service and not their actual credentials is because, quite frankly, it is a pretty qualified group. So you know we shouldn't be all that upset that uh, he's turning to these 
this group of uh, people to build his cabinet. And that is why we're seeing them be attacked personally, because they have run restaurant, major restaurant chains or worked at Goldman Sachs and not being attacked for not being qualified. But is there a certain hypocrisy? And let's, let's look at the, the gentleman from Goldman Sachs. Uh, he criticized Hillary Clinton for even speaking to Goldman Sachs uh, during the campaign and said, well, you can't be doing that sort of thing if you're going to be president. And now he's actually pulling from the staff of Goldman Sachs to be one of his, his cabinet minister or cabinet uh, appointees. Absolutely a hypocritical uh, issue for him, and it, it, it's very amusing. I saw a, a Democrat be interviewed on uh, MSNBC yesterday, and she had said, I was told if I voted for Hillary Clinton, Goldman Sachs would be running the government. And I voted for Hillary Clinton, and they are running the government. <laughs> so wh- wh- where do you draw the line here? Do you simply just shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's just the way government works? Or did, uh, I mean, did, do you demand something here? I mean, wh- where where does Trump get off on this thing? Or does he just continue to roll along? He's, it, there's still a honeymoon period going on here, clearly. You know, and frankly, I think this is a positive development because Donald Trump's not acting as erratic and irrational as people had assumed he would before he was elected. These cabinet positions, for the most part, are being filled by people of a uh, excellent caliber, and we should all be happy about that. Uh, and Donald Trump, during the campaign, early on said that, you know, there's a group of voters. He could go shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. They'd still vote for him. So for them, these appointments are going to be like that. And they're not going to care. For the rest of us, a lot of folks who may have voted for him reluctantly because he wasn't Hillary Clinton or because Republicans are Republican and they always vote Republican but were never sold on Donald Trump, this is actually a pretty positive development. I mean, there's always going to be some some pushback on some of these people. I mean, you know, the, the argument against uh, Puzder on this thing, of course, is he's the guy from the fast food industry, is that uh, labor union leaders are saying, well, look, at this is a guy who, who made his wealth uh, based on low-wage labor, illegal workers, and things of this nature. And uh, they're concerned about whether or not he's going to be an advocate for laborers or he's simply going to start to reduce uh, a lot of the laws and a lot of the regulations that are already in place. Is that a legitimate fear? Absolutely. You know, it is a legitimate fear for the uh, labor movement. This is a fellow who, you know, I think the biggest criticism of him is uh, bad hamburgers at Carl's Jr., but definitely (laughs) for the labor movement, uh, you know, he is uh, anti-increasing the national minimum wage, which to Canadians probably sounds amusing because we're very lucky that we don't have a national minimum wage. But uh, overall, for employees, I think, you know, it's probably going to be a good thing because it will mean more jobs, not fewer jobs that the lucky few are lucky to have. What about the billionaires? Uh, And again, there was a perception, Michael, and I know you talked about that when you appeared on the program here many times during the campaign uh, between Labor Day and November the 8th. Uh, One of the mantras of the Trump campaign was that, look, I'm not one of the Washington elites. I'm I'm not going to do that. Uh, even though he was, a, you know, a billionaire among you know, himself, but I mean, people seem to relate to him. His his core supporters always looked at him as as representing every man, the average Joe, so to speak, Joe the plumber, I guess, and not these elites. Uh, is, is he is he betraying them now by simply moving toward that, gravitating toward those elites and the the people that he used to rub shoulders with all the time in New York and Washington? Well, again, I mean, you know, Donald Trump, yes, exactly as you said, is the quote-unquote blue-collared billionaire who was able to connect with people. These other folks in his cabinet, for the most part, do not fill that sort of uh, very unique makeup, and they're they're definitely the, you know, uppity elites who he was rallying against. The really amusing thing is how often did Donald Trump talk about how he was going to get support from Bernie Sanders voters, and Bernie Sanders never gave a speech without attacking the millionaires and the billionaires. So, So definitely if he did actually get any 
any significant uh, share of the Bernie Sanders vote, they'll very much feel betrayed. But for that Donald Trump vote, it was never really as much about what he was saying as how he was saying it. What There's always a, a, a disconnect, isn't there, Michael, between what's said during a political campaign and what's said after the, the election results are actually in, and, and somebody has, has assumed that role, whether it's prime minister, whether it's president, whatever the case might be. Uh, I mean, there were there were expectations on both sides, and you remember well back in 2005, 2006, when Stephen Harper was elected, uh, about what he might do as a prime minister and you know bring back the abortion debate and the civil marriage, uh, and there was going to be this and there was going to be that. And, and as it turned out, for the most part, uh, although there was a conservative bent to it, Stephen Harper pretty much governed from the middle. Uh, it, what, what about the Trump presidency? What can we look forward to here? Well, you know, that's, that's the wild card because, you know, Stephen Harper, uh, that's absolutely true, but much more typical politicians. You know, you'll often hear people say, you know, run to the right, govern to the center. Canadians and Americans, for the most part, very centrist bunch uh, with, you know, a bit of swing, uh, a swing on the side. Uh, from Trump, though, since he didn't really follow any sort of path to get to the White House, we've all been expecting it to be quite erratic. And I think what we're seeing in the first few weeks of the transition, or as he'd like to call it, the transition to greatness, we're seeing a much more even-handed approach than we were expecting. What role does Mike Pence pay in this administration? I mean, we've there are some again who are speculating. If you watch some of the Sunday morning shows, Michael, that have suggested that, look at, uh, you know, Trump is basically going to be there and, and be Donald Trump, but Mike Pence is the guy who's actually probably going to run the cabinet and run the the the, the lion's share of the decision making and the everyday work that needs to be done. Is is that an accurate uh, assessment? I think it is, and we know from uh, one of the Trump sons' offers of the uh, vice presidential nomination to Governor John Kasich that the cell was you'd be the most important vice president in history. You'd be in charge of domestic and international affairs. And when the Kasich aide asked what would the president do, the response was make America great again. So you know, there's <laughs> this sort of acknowledgement that Donald Trump is there, and he's a figurehead, he's he's a salesman, he's going to be the the promoter in chief, and uh, Mike Pence, who will not just be very important in in working with the cabinet, but as a longtime member of Congress, uh, he, he served for about a decade there, served in the leadership, very good friends with the Speaker of the House, is going to be very critical in being the link between the West Wing and Capitol Hill. I mean, there used to be this idea that the, you know, the role of the Vice President was really almost ceremonial. You know, I mean, yeah, they had that role in the Senate, certainly, but, but not a whole lot of power. They were at the Cabinet table, but the President called the shots. Uh, Dick Cheney kind of redefined that. Uh, you know, George W. Bush obviously had an active role, but I mean, Cheney, we find out in hindsight, had a lot more to do with how that administration ran than the usual of vice presidents do. Is, is, could you see Pence handling that in the same fashion? Absolutely. I think Pence is just a less, uh, you know, less arrogant fellow, and Donald Trump is also a much less humble fellow than George W. Bush. So publicly, we'll never see those suggestions being made. We'll never see the vice president hinting that he's, he's running the show, uh, and we'll never see people saying that about the president. But I think behind the scenes, absolutely. And, you know, a funny line here, but uh, uh, John Gardner, who was one of uh, FDR's uh, three vice presidents that it's not worth a bucket of warm uh, extreatment. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot of love amongst former vice presidents for the <laughs> office. <laughs> what about the Twitter stuff? Uh, you know, it stopped over the last couple of days of the campaign. Uh, he's, he's revived it again. 
some people, again, are drawing the, the, the contrast that he apparently, uh, from what we're told anyway, Michael, has skipped a number of uh, security uh, briefings that he probably could have and should have attended, uh, and uh, which I guess kind of underscores this idea that he's not going to take a great interest in some of these everyday things, but he's always on Twitter. Uh, as maybe he's, he's spent a lot more time talking about Saturday Night Live than he has about foreign affairs over the last couple of weeks. You know, it's it's quite amusing because, you know, back in high school and university, I'd go out on Saturday night and wake up on Sunday with a bit of a headache from whatever I was doing the night before. Now I go to bed early on Saturday night, wake up Sunday morning, and get to read Donald Trump uh, tweeting about how Alec Baldwin is uh, disgusting and unfair and not very good at uh, being his impersonation of Donald Trump. So, you know, I'd say he's got to stop, but it got him through the primary. It got him through the election. It's how his base wants to hear from him. It's how he wants to deal with the media. Uh, I would never suggest to someone they stop doing something that's working for them. It, it's bizarre. It's, it, it, it's unlike anything we've seen before, but at the end of the day, it's uh, affected for him. Does he look at this as the vehicle to, to st- maintain that contact with his core supporters? Uh, it, he's always been skeptical, and, and more so, of course, during this campaign about what they call the mainstream media, the, that they will skewer his message in some way, shape, or form. But does, does he look at Twitter as, as, as the, uh, the express way to get right to those people without having to go through the media? Precisely, and it's definitely more about the latter part of that, of getting around the media so he can have an unfiltered message to his uh, to his audience than have the media spin it, clip it, take take bits and pieces of what he says. So that's why that's why I think he loves the Instagram videos, the Twitter uh, messages he's able to send out, and the, the YouTube videos to announce some pretty substantive stuff. What about foreign affairs? It was always considered as something. I mean, you know, his his, his rebuttal to the, uh, the fact that he didn't have a lot of experiences is that he read read a lot of books about China and he did business, so he understands Chinese people. Uh, there's that relationship with Putin that we still have not been able to define what's going on in that as well. Uh, how does this roll out right now? I, I mean, is there's a concern here that this guy's going to be a, a babe in the woods when it comes to international affairs, but then you contrast that with his reputation as a, as a tough negotiator in the business world. Yeah, if he's willing to take good advice and if he's willing to uh, learn a bit about history and listen to people who, who are well-versed on this, it should work out pretty okay. You know, during the campaign, one thing Donald Trump said at least once was he knows more about uh, about these matters than the generals. And now we're seeing he's relying an awful lot on generals. So maybe it's a bit of admission that uh, he knows what he does not know and is willing to uh, get the right help. Uh, the Electoral College vote's coming up in a couple of weeks, and, and you've seen the stories, Michael, that uh, at least one or two of those Electoral College delegates are now saying, well, we're not going to vote for Trump even though... And and there's the other story, of course, that Hillary Clinton actually had three million more votes than him. Is is there anything? Is that there any fire where where that smoke seems to be coming from? No, you know, I think it will probably be limited to this one faithless elector in Texas who will vote against uh, the electorate in that state. Uh, It it is quite interesting, even though Donald Trump is so unpopular, you know, that he has uh, probably the highest uh, negative ratings of any new incoming president ever, that if you contrast the support for the Electoral College between now and 2000, when George W. Bush was elected in the Electoral College while losing the popular vote by a much smaller margin, the support then for, in 2000, for reform of the Electoral College system was much higher than it is today. So I don't think there's a whole lot of resentment uh, amongst the public for how this played out. 
Congress actually at one point actually voted to to get rid of the Electoral College and got overturned in the Senate. They they didn't follow through on that. Is there an appetite to actually look at reform of this political system and this electoral system? Not very, not very large, and you know the uh, uh, Senate will block it because it de- definitely with the the uh, two members, and I think it would probably have to go to the states as well, uh, since it would be a uh, amendment to the constitution. Yeah, that's right. uh, and since these small states would get rid of it, you know, in in North Dakota where they know that their couple hundred thousand votes are equal to, you know, they're getting a electoral vote for every few hundred thousand. Where in California, it's like you know. 500,000, 600,000 per electoral college vote. Uh, these small states uh, know that they're uh, treated quite well with it and would be able to block it uh, in terms of uh, their not- The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.